I'm Julianne DeLynn Hatton, and you're listening to Faith and Reason on the Mormon Faircast. This series will discuss the Prophet Joseph Smith and the authenticity of the gospel he restored. I'll be speaking with Michael R. Ash, author of the book of Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. Welcome, Michael Ash. Hi, Julianne. How are things going? Things are going great, thank you. Let's talk about more Book of Abraham evidences today. Okay. We're going to start with discussing who in Joseph Smith's time knew how to translate Egyptian. In America, there was really pretty much nobody. Um, the translation of the Rosetta Stone had not been fully understood, and um, especially in the United States, and there's work being done on it, but nobody in the vicinity um, would have really been able to translate any of the papyri that Joseph Smith had at the time, and that, that didn't come for a little while still. Why is that important to know when we're discussing the Book of Abraham? Because it's important to understand that Joseph Smith didn't have, just like he couldn't read the writings in Reformed Egyptian, he couldn't actually read the writings in Ancient Egyptian on the papyri. So both with the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham, he was not able to read these like a scholar can, okay? But neither could anybody else. And so what's important about that is that Joseph Smith received this information by revelation, and um, whatever he received by revelation could not have been confirmed in his day, but now that Egyptian is understood, and, and I should point out, it's not just understanding uh, Egyptian, because there's various periods and different understandings. It's, it's like saying understanding America. You know, mm -hmm. there, there's different time periods and so forth. Um, but also understanding of, of how maybe some of the ancient uh, uh, Jewish communities would have understand, understood the Egyptian writing because there, there was a little bit of a crossover in some of this understanding, which I think we'll talk about today as well. But but now we see that some of the things that is that is recorded in the Book of Abraham actually has old world counterparts that Joseph Smith couldn't have known about. This is particularly interesting. Yes, it it's and it's a. The Book of Abraham is a very complex uh, book as far as studying it from a scholarly point of view because there's still a lot we don't know. There's a lot we don't understand about the translation. We do, there's a lot we don't understand about what ties the papyri might have had again to uh, maybe early Jewish communities and their understanding of, uh, of iconography. Uh, but this is all progressing, and the more it progresses, uh, there's more interesting light shed on it from a, a believing Latter-day Saint point of view. What are facsimiles? Well, facsimile is basically a reproduction. In fact, it was really even, it, it refers to the copies in the, in the old days. You had the, the funny-smelling paper and so forth. So a facsimile is a copy. Uh, and Joseph had this papyra that he had uh, some of his people um, basically redraw and and when they redrew the images to put into print, you know, you didn't have copy machines back in his days. They created a facsimile. So basically it's a copy. Um, and so the facsimile is based on um, what was really on the papyra at the time, some of which, in fact, a lot of which is missing. So the facsimile is what we find in the scriptures. It, it's a copy of it, again, hand-drawn in this particular case. Let's begin with facsimile one. 
Okay, for facsimile one is on uh, one of the Joe Smith papyrus that actually has survived, and uh, it's what's called the lion couch scene. And, and, and anybody that's read The Pearl of Great Price, if you look through it, there's, there's a, a reconstruction there. And again, um, the facsimile that the artist had to redraw in some of the pieces that were missing uh, to make it kind of whole. Um, and it's referred to as facsimile one because that's the basically the first one that's uh, contained in the book. It, it has nothing to do with, with what the Egyptians would have called it. But it's a lion couch scene is what uh, uh, we refer to it. And what's interesting from Joseph Smith's quote-unquote translation of this, because again, he's not translating in a scholarly sense, but he's looking at it from what kind of understanding would have been given to it by people that had a religious interest in in it that, that is similar somehow to ours or gives us enlightenment uh, from a Latter-day Saint point of view. Uh, Joe Smith said that there's this part underneath there that, that this represented the pillars of heaven as understood by the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Now, here's where it gets fascinating because a lot of Egyptologists claim that Joseph Smith's translation of these works don't match up with what Egyptologists currently say about it. But that's not really true. Not, not, not 100% true, and it's not even true uh, at, at deeper levels because we have, for instance, in this particular case, Pillars of Heaven uh, is actually something that we do find in the Egyptian literature referring to this type of uh, basically iconography. And so sometimes when translating Egyptian, that there's a meaning that modern Egyptologists give to it, and there's, there's other meanings that were uh, maybe understood of the people of the day, um, as well as not just the Egyptians, but people, maybe early uh, Jews of the day. Uh, and, and this brings up in a very important point that, that uh, I need to make. People... All people repurpose iconography and symbols to apply to them in their day. Uh, if we remember Nephi when he talked about likening the scriptures to them, you know, in other words, he applied it to his people. We do the same thing. Ancient people do the same thing. A, a lot of Bible scholars believe that many parts of the book of Genesis and the creation accounts and and uh, flood counts and so forth, that the that these are based on stories that uh, and traditions that the Israelites repurposed from the surrounding stories as well. So they kind of combine their traditions in the language of their day so that the people of the day could understand it. Um, you know, everybody today is familiar with what's known as the swastika, you know, from uh, the Nazi rule, you know, Adolf Hitler had it posted everywhere. But but this is a symbol that goes back long prior to Adolf Hitler's rule. I mean, it goes back to ancient times and was used for different purposes in, in ancient times. And, and so people repurpose different types of symbols. And and Kevin Barney is, is the one who wrote about this. Uh, mostly he's an LDS scholar, and he wrote an, a very interesting article years ago about uh, how some of this uh, information from the facsimiles has very interesting ties to what Jews would have, how they would have understood these uh, graphics, not necessarily how the Egyptians of the day would have understood it, but how the Jews would have understood it. And... Uh, and repurposed the Egyptian iconography. In fact, uh, um, Osiris, who, who you know is is a very important figure in 
Egyptian, ancient Egyptian culture, um, stories with Osiris sometimes were repurposed by the Jews and replaced with Abraham. So we, again, we, we, we see this kind of a repurposing of, of these iconography. And so if we understand it from this point of view, all of a sudden there's a lot more depth to these Egyptian papyri than we first would have known about. And, and so we, we find support not just from Egypt but from uh, the Israelites as well. So anyhow, we have the first one here that I talk about is the pillars of heaven. So that's one example. Um, you know, the second one I talk about in my book, uh, is Kolob, and of course Latter-day Saints, you know, that's, that's the planet near the, or the star, the celestial place near where God resides. Where does the word Kolob come from? It's a Semitic root, so, so again, it comes from this kind of Israelite root that uh, spelled Q-O-B, because in ancient Hebrew there were no vowels, okay? Um, but it would have pr pronounced as something in the lines of Kolob or Kalob, and it means heart center or middle, okay, so, so it's kind of a core area. And in one of the facsimiles, and not in facsimile uh, one, but in, in facsimile two, which is uh, uh, we don't have right now in the surviving uh, documents, this would have referred to God's residence, meaning, again, that the kind of the seat and, and the primary seat of power uh, we're the center of the universe, perhaps. And so if we look at the uh, uh, Semitic root, that actually ties to the same thing, is that it's somehow the center, the heart, and, and, and also in uh, Arabic form referred to one of the brightest stars in the night sky. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about this in the last podcast of how there are these concentric kind of like circles that go up above the sky, and each higher, uh, higher level uh, brings you closer to God. Well, the brightest stars in the sky w would have been understood as being close to God, you know, being near to God. And, and so we have this direct tie-in of Kolob from ancient traditions tying into stars that would have been close to the, the heavens, close to God. And Joseph Smith's translation is Kolob being uh, the star nearest to uh, God. Hmm, that's an interesting connection. Yeah. Figure six has four sort of animal-like mummies. Tell me about that. Yeah, the, the, these are underneath the lion couch, um, and uh, they are supposed to represent, according to Joseph Smith, the, the four quarters of the earth. Well, the Egyptologists say that, okay, that they actually represent the four sons of Horus. And, and so initially they said, well, Joseph Smith got it wrong. But... The problem with that kind of a, approach is that the four sons of Horus, they were not only gods, but they represented the four cardinal directions of the earth. Hmm. So, so when Joseph Smith said they represented the four quarters, that's exactly what they represent. It's just that there's, again, different levels to this uh, uh, understanding of it. And this has been discovered fairly recently? Yes, just within, you know, the last uh, home maybe half century or so within the last 50 years, long after Joseph Smith, you know, gave his translation. If I recall, you discussed this also in Shaken Faith Syndrome. Correct. Uh, Shaken Faith Syndrome was written to answer the objections that uh, arise on a variety of different LDS topics. And so I have a, a section on the Book of Abraham, and I address all the major concerns that critics have thrown out uh, to try to 
disprove the uh, Book of Abraham. And so I do talk about some of the evidences, and I talk about you know some of the arguments against it, and how how those arguments uh, are are not uh, you know as strong as the critics would make them out to be. And then of course uh, in my book of faith and reason, I, I spend time trying to pare down the most interesting evidences into a, a very easy-to-read format. But shaken faith syndrome, I, I spent quite a bit more time dealing with the overall issues. Let's talk about Abraham now. Abraham has, you know, a, quite a tradition among, uh, you know, Muslims, uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, uh, other Christians, as well as Jewish community. So, so he goes back a long ways, and he's kind of the father of many nations, as was prophesied. And there's a lot of ancient texts that, that deal with his traditions. And these texts were not known, for the most part, in Joseph Smith's day. But now, you know, thanks to um, um, these vaults, well, I shouldn't say vaults, but basically these uh, ancient libraries and so forth being opened and found, you know, discovering books and, and scholars really researching them out, we have a lot more information about the ancient traditions surrounding Abraham than uh, Joseph Smith would have had. And, and this is a very important point because too many times both critics and Latter-day Saints get hung up on the translation method. You know, how did Joseph Smith take the papyri and, and turn out the book of Abraham? You know, uh, and, and how could some of these things maybe controversial over the facsimiles in, in Egyptian translations and so forth. But he produced a book, and we can read this and compare it now to what the ancient peoples believed about the uh, f figure of Abraham and, and, and his life and so forth. And all of a sudden, we find some pretty powerful parallels that uh, the book of Abraham in Latter-day Saint scripture talks about certain traditions that are not included in the Bible, things that we do find in these ancient traditions. You say they're in Jewish and Muslim traditions as well as Christian traditions. That's correct, yes. Yeah, because like I said, he's kind of the father of, uh, of many nations, and so a lot of people kept these traditions alive about him. And so we have a lot more uh, information available to us today that we can research. And, and, and scholars have done this. They've looked at some of these traditions and found some fascinating parallels. Let's talk about some of the common elements. Well, some of the things that we um, know about is that Abraham's father, uh, Terah, worshipped idols. He, he actually was involved in, in uh, um, you know, maybe trying to sacrifice uh, Abraham uh, because Abraham ref refused to worship the idols and that uh, Abraham prayed for uh, his life, that he was in danger, that an angel came to rescue him. Um, that, that there was an, an altar involved. In, in, in most of the ancient texts, it talks about a furnace, not necessarily uh, a lion couch, but, but uh, nevertheless, there was a danger to Abraham's life um, and that he prayed and was released from it, um, that he was heir to the priesthood, Abraham's link to, to Noah, um, that he made converts in, in, in Haran, which is a, a city that he settled after leaving Ur, um, that he possessed the Urim and Thummim, that he knew about the creation, uh, that, that Pharaoh was a descendant of Ham, but also of, of Canaan, and that, that the first Pharaoh was a good man and he blessed Noah. There's a whole 
ton of these things that are found scattered throughout these uh, ancient documents that all kind of come together in the book of uh, Abraham in LDS scripture. So basically, we have a revealed document, and we can look back to some of these other texts, you know, ones that were kept and, and rewritten and, and uh, also obviously corrupted uh, and influenced by the culture of their day, but we can find traces of the unique Latter-day Saint perspective in these ancient documents. I think it's interesting that you point out that Genesis says Abraham was 75 when he left Haran, um, but the book of Abraham says something else. Yeah, that he was actually 62, and, and that again is uh, uh, confirmed by you know some of these ancient uh, documents that weren't known to Joseph Smith. A lot of interesting information here. Yeah, it, it's fascinating, there, and, and, and I in my book, uh, A Faith and Reason, I just try to give a little synopsis of some of this information, but there's a lot more out there. With a lot of footnotes. Yes. In, in fact, I do include a footnote for, for uh, people that want to really dig into some of these uh, traditions and read a little bit more. Um, the, the source for these stories can be found in a book called The Traditions About the Early Life of Abraham, and it was uh, published by Farms, the Foundation of Ancient Research and Mormon Studies that um, kind of changed their name since then, but back in 2001, I think it's still available in print, and uh, uh, like I said, anybody that's interested can, can find that one. In closing, what do you think the chances are that Joseph Smith could have made this up? You know, he could have made a lucky guess for a couple of these, you know, maybe... I don't know, you know, two percent, five percent. You know, let let's say even fifteen percent of these maybe had a lucky guess, but he has so many bullseyes uh, with the traditions and with the translation of some of these icons in the uh, facsimiles. You know, translated hieroglyphics there, that it just seems unlikely statistically that he could have got so many things right. And I think that that is uh, strong evidence that Joseph Smith received this by revelation just as he had claimed. Thank you, Michael Ash. Thank you, Julianne. Thanks for listening to Faith and Reason on the Mormon Faircast. I'm your host, Julianne DeLynn Hatton, inviting you to keep the faith. Michael Arash is the author of the book, Shaken Faith Syndrome, Strengthening One's Testimony in the Face of Criticism and Doubt, as well as the book of Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. Faith and Reason is produced by Tom Hatton with music courtesy of Arthur Hatton. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it in iTunes and by rating it and writing a review. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org or you may join the conversation at fairblog.org.